on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, the latest on electric tractors. Any application between that 90 and 130 horsepower range to have a fully battery electric solution. When we start to go into those higher horsepower ranges, you know, I think the opportunity there still is around the diesel technology as well as other more sustainable options like biofuels and hybrid options. And an upgrade of a northwest Tasmanian teaching farm. 30-odd years I've been here, so I've seen a lot of changes over that time. When we first started here, we had a, a real old leany shed and an old house, and, uh, and it's really good to see where it's evolving to now. Now we've got GPS, we've got uh, all sorts of monitoring equipment. We can send messages everywhere. Yeah, we'll take you to Freer Farm in the northwest to have a look at the changes and the multi-million dollar upgrade. Plus, a look at where the tractor market is when it comes to converting the farm workhorse to electric. G'day, Tony, with you on this Tuesday. We'll also look at a weed-busting dog and a tick disease not normally seen in Tasmanian cattle, but now confirmed in the state. The story come up for you in just a moment. And as per normal, we'll check the latest on the weather, some interesting storms around the traps and uh, more to come today, apparently, but we'll find out at the halfway point of the program. And also take your thoughts on any topic via the text line 0438 922 that number 0438 922 First up today, Tasmanian cattle producers have been urged to watch out for a type of tick that spreads a nasty parasite causing animals to become anemic. Theliorosis, typically found in New South Wales, has been detected in a locally bred cow, which is the first case of its kind for Tasmania. Larissa Smith spoke to vet Dr Bruce Jackson about what farmers need to look out for. I've been watching it for a long time because, um, yes, it, you know, I've seen the modelling which shows that Tasmania, parts of Tasmania, uh, are the right environment for the tick. And, of course, you know, with a bit of climate change and stuff like that, a lot more irrigation, they're setting up conditions. And, of course, you know, we've had a lot of cattle imported into the state ever since, you know, we used to have a quarantine system which limited the number quite a lot, but um, yeah, the numbers of cattle coming in from everywhere, etc. Um, I knew that the risk was there and um, I'd actually been talking to various people about could we do anything to reduce the risk, but you know, the, the general consensus was that there wasn't much we can do because it can travel on uh, so many different species and, and even birds, it might even it's a ride on a kettle egret or something like that. Do you find it odd that a disease has presented itself in a locally bred cow and not a beast that has come into the state? Yes, that's what makes us think that there's been local transmission um, and that's why we're very interested in whether the tick is uh, there and um, yeah, hopefully we will actually um, be able to, to do some blanket drags across the paddock where the cows became ill and see if we can uh, get any little ticks to hook onto the blanket and be identified and um, we can then tell, tell whether, uh, you know, the tick is here. Otherwise, it, it could possibly be spread by other things like, you know, March flies or uh, vaccination gear, and you know, anything that might transfer a couple of blood cells could transfer... Um, the parasite from imported cattle to locally bred cattle. How does the disease present itself? Well, in this case, it was mainly abortions. You know, they'll cattle 
they're depressed, they'll have a high temperature, their ears will be drooping and they just look sick. Uh, and then if you examine them, they usually have very pale mucous membranes. So, to, you know, mostly we just pull down the eyelid and have a look at the inside lining of the, of the eye. And if that's pale, and normally it should be a nice healthy pink, if that's pale and usually they're a bit jaundiced, a bit yellowish, then uh, that's that's a um, an indicator. It's not the you know it's, it's uh, not many other diseases in Tasmania that will cause anemia and jaundice, but there there are others. Uh, and then yes, you then uh, abortions, deaths, uh, quite quite common. And um, yeah, then you've got to do some testing to be sure. We have other types of ticks though in Tassie, don't we? We do. Yes, we've got. Um, uh, you know, a number of other ticks. The, the paralysis tick here is the um, Ixodes type ticks uh, are, are relatively common. And there's a few different species on wildlife too, I think. But yeah, normally we don't see many ticks on cattle. So what conditions are ideal for this tick to cause teleriosis? What does it need to have to survive? Right, well, the sort of conditions that we they need it needs a bit of warmth. Um, so average temperatures above 12 degrees, and then and then the July temperatures are critical. Usually, if your average maximum July temperatures above 12, and your average minimum uh, July temperatures above two degrees Celsius, rainfall is important. Uh, so over a thousand millimeters of, of rainfall uh, per annum on average. Uh, but of course, irrigation can can compensate for lower rainfall, and uh, and then altitude. So you know, if you're at less than 300 metres, then then the tick has you know, got the right. You, you know, most of those are the right conditions for the for the tick to survive. So the bees, the islands, and parts of the northwest would be prime candidates for that uh, that category. Then, yes, a big chunk of King Island is. Uh, comes up on the <clears throat> when you do the the, the modelling, yeah, big chunk of King Island, um, and uh, yeah, along the coast. If you look at the you can look at nice little heat maps of Tasmania, and uh, around the estuaries, around the coasts, um, yeah, it's sort of warm enough. And uh, you end up in the northwest, of course, we get a bit more rainfall, and that's the prime sort of um, areas where we we could expect to to see an outbreak. Are there other livestock agencies that are concerned about this or are, are looking further into ticks in general in, in Tasmania? Oh, absolutely, yes. NRE, of course, picked it up uh, at the Animal Health Laboratory at uh, Mount Pleasant in Launceston. And, um, yes, they sent out the warning to, to all the um, veterinarians to watch out for it. Fortuitously, um Dairy Tas Board uh, and Dairy and Dairy Australia just just approved some funding for us to start um, looking for the ticks. So uh, we've got some money from them, and uh, there's an NRE entomologist involved, and myself and a, uh, a cattle veterinarian. And uh, yeah, we hope to do a, a survey. We were planning to do do it this coming summer, uh, spring summer, but we hope to get onto the onto the farm where the outbreak was fairly soon because most of the tick activity will be uh, over 
after the end of January. That's veterinarian Dr. Bridge Jackson chatting about theliorosis. Talking there to Larissa Smith, it was recently found in a mob of cattle in the state's northwest for the first time in Tasmania. Well, continuing with cattle and global asparagopsis production company CH4 has struck a deal with a large feedlot in southern New South Wales to supply them with seaweed to help reduce the methane emissions. Ravensworth have 40,000 head of cattle. CH4 have production facilities in South Australia and offices in the US, New Zealand and across Australia. Adam Main is the general manager in this country. He told David Clawton about the deal with Ravensworth. It's a long-term agreement to begin that partnership. Um, we'll scale up with them uh, as the supply of seaweed grows. So um, they have quite a number of head that we will, in a very short time frame, be looking to make all um, methane impact or uh, methane um, reduced or reduction in. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the partnership begins in 2023, and we grow from there. And where are you growing the asparagopsis? So at the moment, we're growing asparagopsis in both Australia and New Zealand. Um, We have the ability to utilise material generated from both. Um, So we've gone through all the necessary uh, process to uh, be able to use local material from Australia, but also import high-grade material as well from New Zealand to uh, to meet uh, the offtake agreements like with uh, Ravensworth. So are you farming the ocean or have you got sort of aquaculture projects running? Yeah, no, it's, it's pure aquaculture. We grow everything that we sell. So it's not a seaweed harvesting company. We're an aquaculture company. So the way that we um, grow the seaweed is both at sea and on land. Um, both of those technologies are, are still developing, and um, we see that there's uh, room to gain in uh, both uh, farming in the, uh, the marine space out in the ocean but also definitely in the land space uh, where we do that in tanks and ponds on land. So as a company... We've taken on quite an aggressive approach to scaling up this technology and we're investing in in both options. How do you get it from your production site to the feedlot as far as Ravensworth goes, for example? Yeah, so the seaweed is a natural product from from the beginning right through to the end. Um, There's not much that we have to do to the seaweed once we harvest it from either the marine or the land. We have to dry it, and you've got to dry it in a certain way, and that's something we've been doing uh, work on for the last couple of years. Once dried, we formulate it quite simply into a, a finished product. That finished finished product goes into uh, bags that goes and gets shipped off to Ravensworth. So as much as we've spent the last couple of years looking at how to scale up the technology, we've also been looking and working with partners like Ravensworth um, in regards to how is it going to be used at the by the end user by at the feedlot end so we haven't gone down the path of making a technology that requires the feedlotter or the farmer to change their business practices by any means so that's been just as important as learning as much about the seaweed as we can but also how we're actually going to get that into the trough for the cows to eat uh, a dose of it every day and so how much will you need i mean i'm, I'm assuming this is just dried seaweed in bags that can be mixed with the other food yeah Yep. So basically, a feedlot farmer um, runs a really tight process in regards to sourcing high-quality materials. It's a mixed blend of all sorts of wonderful things that the cows like eating. And a cow, a normal cow, in any given day would eat somewhere between 12 and 14 kilos of feed. Uh, All we need to add to that uh, mix is 50 grams. 50 grams of seaweed to a 14-kilo feed for a cow a day is enough to turn the methane off. Uh, to a, to the to a level around ninety percent reduction in methane. So, what percentage of of cattle in feedlots now would be getting asparagopsis or some kind of uh, feed to reduce emissions? Do you reckon? 
Oh, low, low now. Yeah, one percent or something. Oh yeah, no, yeah, very low in twenty twenty two. In twenty twenty three, we're absolutely starting to get into counting percentages. So without sort of you know overstepping, we're we're aggressively looking at having twenty thousand head um, at some point in twenty twenty three. Um, but that is then scaled up. It doesn't go up by the tens or the hundreds. It goes up by the thousands as the industry scales up. And it's people like Ravensworth, the early movers, that will get the advantages. And um, I think that Ravensworth, as a mature feedlotting company, are seeing that opportunity both in the domestic and the international market for the export markets. So it's um, it's a pleasure to work with those companies that are that are keen to explore this technology right at the get-go. Adam Main from CH4 talking about the seaweed company's deal with Ravensworth to supply their feedlot with asparagopsis to help reduce methane emissions. And talking about reducing emissions, in a moment we'll take a look at electric vehicles on farm. One famous name in tractors looking to introduce electric tractors to Australian farms within three years. Who do you turn to during storms, floods and fires? For more than 90 years, ABC Radio has been with you through it all. Who's got reporters and broadcasters based in the city and in the country? ABC reporters and broadcasters bring you trusted local information. Who has an unmatched commitment to keeping you informed when communities are threatened? Get regular updates on air, online and on the ABC Listen app. ABC Radio. ABC Radio. Your Your emergency broadcaster. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. A couple of minutes' time, we'll talk about an upgrade of a northwest teaching farm in Tasmania. Well, ag machine company John Deere is planning to launch electric tractors in Australia in just three years. They'll start with a smaller unit suitable for the horticulture sector. Some will be driverless as well. David Clawton spoke about the rollout with the company's Australia and New Zealand production system manager, Steph Jezakowski. So in June last year, we announced um, our electrification strategy as part of our 2026 LEAP ambitions. And under that strategy, um, we announced that we plan to deliver an electric option in each of our turf and compact utility tractor portfolios, um, as well as an autonomous battery electric powered ag tractor by 2026. So it's not just one model, there'll be, there'll be several, will there? Uh, yes, so the battery electric ag tractor is um, currently the project I'm most involved with, but our intention is to offer at least one model across our turf and compact utility portfolio. So so, um, so, be, so it's the kind of thing that would be used on a turf farm? Yeah, correct. Um, so typically we see our compact tractors used across a range of applications, um, acreage, lifestyle properties, as well as hoard and turf applications. And what would it be doing? Cutting grass or would there be other applications? Uh, it could be a range of applications, anything from spraying to mowing um, and other maintenance tasks. Obviously, horticulture customers, when we're talking about row width and limitations, they're, um, they're limited in terms of how they can get those productivity gains. They can't just put a bigger machine in that space. So we feel a battery electric solution will work really well in terms of delivering um, greater efficiencies and the technology uh, to support productivity um, without having to compromise on size. Will they look different? Uh, Yes, they will look somewhat different, but not too different to what you know today. What would the difference be? 
Um, I think you will notice just difference in that machine form. Obviously, we won't have a traditional diesel engine in these ones. So um, you can expect just some design changes there. Smaller? Um, effectively, yes, we'll be able to make them. And if we circle back to the application they're intended for, it's horticulture, right? So making sure that they can fit within rows is really important to us. So you can anticipate um, them being slightly more narrow and a little bit smaller. For those people who are thinking tractors in agriculture, big machines, broad acre type stuff, harvesting crops, when when is that when are you likely to see an electric monster come coming out? Look, I think when we go into those higher horsepower requirements, um, battery electric does have its limitations. So I think, you know, we've got a real opportunity when we're looking at horticulture, you know, any application between that 90 and 130 horsepower range to have a fully battery electric solution. When we start to go into those higher horsepower ranges, you know, I think the opportunity there still is around the diesel technology as well as other more sustainable options um, like biofuels and um, hybrid options. But these, there is, I mean, this question about power and electric machines in in the car industry we're seeing that sometimes uh, and even trucks uh, janice are, are, are converting diesel trucks to electric and saying that they'd be some of the most powerful trucks in australia so what are you seeing in terms of the power of of those smaller tractors that you're about to put out yeah what we expect from battery electric is a more efficient um technology and efficiencies in terms of i guess the power to the ground so um from an application and ability to perform, we have no concerns from that perspective. Right. And, uh, of course, the big issue for farmers is charging batteries. What do you have to change on farm to be able to run an electric tractor? Yeah, I think that's a really relevant question. When we announced the strategy last year, I spoke around the importance of the entire infrastructure and ecosystem that we would be looking to deliver. And that's something we're really mindful of. We can't just put a battery electric tractor on farm and wish our customers all the best. Um, so really the way we're approaching it is through open communication and collaboration with utility providers and partners. Um, and we see that as being critical to the success. So while I can't specifically share what will exactly be needed, I guess I just wanna reassure you know, those who are interested in this technology that we're working with those utility providers and partners to really understand what we need to deliver to make sure that this is feasible for our customers. And people say that electric equipment is much easier or cheaper to service and maintain. But if you're jumping on board with an electric vehicle and, you know, all the usual service options aren't available to you because they're new, how is that? How do you think that's going to be for, for early adopters? What are you thinking about servicing and maintenance? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I guess with um, battery electric technology, what you can expect to see is not only the machine being simpler, it's also down to the components as well. So we absolutely anticipate less maintenance and servicing um, and parts required to keep the machines running. Um, in terms of, I guess, the aftermarket support and service for our customers, this is something we're already proactively working um, to upskill and address with our dealer network to make sure that they're well prepared to service and support these machines for our customers. That's Steph Jezakowski from John Deere talking to David Clawton about the rollouts of electric tractors. It'll start with a select group of farmers initially and will happen at the same time as the US. The cost of the electric tractors will be higher than conventional but the company expects the prices will come down and the cost over the life cycle of the machines will be lower when you account for lower running and repair costs. I stand with the people. People others first. 
who care for the young and the aged. Give of themselves for the benefit of all. Make a difference in small ways and bring big changes. I'm in good company. I'm in good company. Who will be Australian of the Year? Join Susie Youssef and me, Hamish McDonald, to find out who will be Australian of the Year. Wednesday night, January 25th on ABC Radio, ABC TV and streaming on ABC iview. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Well, have you ever been inside a modern school and thought this is a lot fancier than what I had as a kid? It's not only schools that need to keep up with the times. Bernie's Free Farm, a training property owned by Taz Tafe, is in the middle of a $5 million makeover. Our reporter Meg Powell went to the farm to check it out. A $5 million upgrade will flip an old Bernie farm into a modern agricultural training facility. Owned by Taz Tafe and called Freer Farm, the state government began works in May last year. Fourth farmer Mike Badcock has been on the farm's management committee since 1990. 30-odd years I've been here, so I've seen a lot of changes. Over that time, when we first started here, we had a, a real old leany shed <laughs> and an old house, and, uh, and it's really good to see where it's evolving to now. So um, just paint us a picture now. What does this place look like compared to how it did in 1990? Yes, as like with everything, it's becoming much more professional and that's what we have to do in today's world. Technology is really increased. Like uh, when we first started here, yeah, we might have had an old Fergus or a Fordson tractor just with a few gears in it, uh, had a set of lights and that's about all it had. Now we've got GPS, we've got uh, all sorts of monitoring equipment, we can send messages everywhere, uh, the tractors can steer themselves straight and all sorts of things. So it, it's, a, it's the way the modern world is going now. Now, it's been a, a bit of a battle getting this place up to where it is today. Can you tell me a bit about that over the years? Yes, it's had a mixed uh, mixed uh, upbringing. I, I think when we first developed it, when the government first bought it, it there was a real need. And a lot of uh, farmers' sons, it was in those days, we weren't getting many people out of urban, came here to learn the basics of farming other than what their father was teaching them. Now, that created a few challenges at times <laughs> and uh, quite often the kid came home and he said, this is the way you do fencing, Dad, and no, it's <laughs> not. But uh, over time, we've evolved with a much more professional setup. But it's uh, quite interesting for because I've been here quite a while that I've seen a lot of trainees who have actually come through the farm and, boy, have they progressed in life since they've been to the farm. And they got their first start here by being a trainee here, trainee here on this farm. Right, so they're not necessarily farm kids even that come here? No, we've found uh, quite often it's not necessarily farm kids. Some of the best people or best farmers now are coming out of the urban environment. You have to be a business person now to be a good farmer and, uh, and uh, so it's open for everybody. And another interesting thing, for every 10 people qualifying for agricultural training at the moment, there's 60 jobs. And agricultural training, I hope everybody has a good look at it because it involves nearly everything. You, you have to be a jack of all trades to be on a farm nowadays. So the training takes that on board. So you, could, you have to be in construction, you have to be a mechanic, you have to be everything. So you're getting a wide experience if you utilise the services of what the uh, Freer Farm here is, the Taste Tape Farm. 
So what is this place going to look like? There's obviously something's happening over here. We've got lots of scaffolding. We've got a new tractor coming in. What is it actually going to look like? Yes, uh, we, we, we were very pleased when we got the $5 million to uh, turn uh, Freer Farm or start turning Freer Farm into a centre of excellence. Uh, we're putting in a learning centre here, which is possibly uh, increased in size from our original plan. But because uh, we could see the need for a central pace for a learning centre, but it has left us a little bit short on some of the other things that we do want to do on the farm. So uh, we do have, uh, we are talking to government at the moment in ways and means how we might be able to rectify that. Going to be looking for more grants perhaps? It would be very handy. Uh, we have got that costed out and uh, to turn this into a centre of excellence for training right across the board, we'll, we'll need to do a bit more on irrigation and, and a few things along those lines to what... Uh, to what we originally planned. Skills and Training Minister Felix Ellis said training was expected to start at the centre by the middle of the year. So to be able to support our agricultural industry with world-class training and equipment is so vital for what we're doing. So today here we've got an update uh, on the build that's happening at our new Agricultural Training Centre of Excellence. Uh, The build began last year with uh, AJR Construct uh, and we're now 70% the way through. So what that means is we can give you a, a time frame. We're expecting completion April and May uh, which will mean then that students will be able to be using our new centre uh, just down uh, just down from where we are now um, uh, this year uh, in the second half of the year. So with that, I'll pass over to CEO Grant Dreer um, of TASTAFE. Just to echo what the Minister has said, we're, we're really excited with the progress we're making here at Freer Farm and the Agriculture Centre of Excellence. This really is a, fa- a working farm, so it's a training farm and it runs as a working farm. And a lot of what we do here are the skills that students will be learning learning in traineeships and apprenticeships in the agriculture space. So that, that could be about you know, making sure that they're, they're doing their fencing correctly, that they're baling hay. Uh, when this tractor that we talked about, when they're using technology on farm, that they're making sure they know how to use it and how it translates maybe from the cloud or the satellite down into the, into the work they're doing. Um, particular courses, we could probably give you a list, but um, you know, there'll, be, there'll be a lot of things happening. The main thing being that this is a farm and people are learning on a simulated farm, not a simulated farm, a real farm. It has tape CEO Grant Dreer ending that report by Meg Powell checking in on a nearly completed $5 million upgrade to the TAFE's educational farm and it's known as Freer Farm in Burnie. Still to come on the country hour, US genetics helping the Australian dairy industry. Also a tribute to a legend of dairy in Tasmania and a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Liz Gwynn. Good afternoon, Tony. Some health experts are calling for certain types of antibiotics to be reserved for children and the elderly as Australia grapples with a pharmaceutical supply issue. The Department of Health website currently lists a criti- critical shortage of 46 medicines with 380 others in demand due to an unexpected increase in the use of antibiotics and medications globally. A leading demographer says Japan's low birth rate is putting pressure on the country's labour force. Official estimates say there were only 800,000 births in Japan last year, a new record low. At a median age of 49, Japan is one of the oldest countries in the world and the population has been declining for decades. And former US Open tennis champion Sam Stosa plans to move into a coaching and mentorship role following her retirement from professional tennis on the weekend. The 38-year-old formerly left the playing ranks when she and her partner 
Matt Ebden lost their first round mixed doubles match at the Australian Open on Saturday. More news at one. And time now to check the latest on the weather. Belinda House joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Belinda. Oh, how are you this afternoon? Yeah, pretty good. Um, mixed uh, bag again. Uh, some more of those storms on the way? Yeah, look, we are starting to see the uh, cloud convect up pretty well right across the uh, the state. Uh, looking on the radar, seeing some uh, decent showers down through the far south, seeing a bit of lightning down around the, the Jeeveston area broadly um, already this afternoon. So we'll see those uh, showers pop up across uh, most parts and again, a risk of thunderstorms this afternoon but perhaps not quite as widespread as, yes, as yesterday. The rainfall we saw in the gauges for those storms yesterday, the, the south picked up the highest falls. Uh, ooze had 41 millimetres. Hearts Mountains had 32. Cannell Hill and Warra both picked up 26 millimetres. Lake Leak uh, also 27 millimetres there. So some falls up around there, 20 to 30 millimetres and 41 at Ooze. So yeah, showers a risk across the state today. You're talking, you know, your 2 to 5s, your 2 to 10 millimetres generally and uh, possibly some isolated heavier falls if you happen to get right under a storm or a heavier shower. Look, the, the weather pattern will change a little tomorrow though we're going to see winds turn around to a freshening northwesterly so showers will sort of become more confined to the northwest and far south during the day with mainly fine conditions elsewhere. Then on Thursday we're anticipating a cool change to push across the state bringing cooler temperatures for the south in particular. Showers will be confined mostly to the west and south during the morning. Showers also about the northeast are lingering there during the day with otherwise fine conditions. Then on Friday maybe just a light shower or two about the northwest and northeast of the state, but not putting a whole lot in the gauge with fine conditions elsewhere. Light winds to begin the day on Friday, but they're going to turn around to the northeast and freshen during the day. Then on Saturday, we've got a we're watching the development of a cold front, and so we're anticipating uh, conditions to become warm to hot and windy with our freshening northerly winds ahead of a front that's expected during the weekend. So on Saturday, showers developing about the northwest and far south during the afternoon or evening with fine conditions out elsewhere. And sort of average temperatures for this time of the year? Yeah, look, average for the next uh, day or two. Thursday will see a little bit cooler during uh, through the south of the state. Not much impact in the north, remaining close to average. Friday, fairly close to average. Saturday's shaping up that it could be a hot day on Saturday with those strengths and freshening northerly winds. Okay. And uh, no hail with the, any of these storms, just the lightning? No, no, just uh, lightning. And they could come through... A, a, heavy bursts if you happen to be just under one but you know 30 millimeters out of a storm would be the the top end of it i would expect okay belinda now warnings what have we got look we don't have any warnings today uh we do have a marine warning for tomorrow it's a strong winds for the uh, upper east coast and for the southern and western coastal waters from tasman island to sandy cape tomorrow so the strong winds developing there so coastal waters overview generally today they're, they're reasonable light really generally speaking northeasterly winds at 10 to 15 knots although perhaps turning around southeasterly about the northeast of the states and a little more variable in the west and southwest where you're getting the sea breeze influence so the swell cape sorrel at present sitting around one meter coming in from the southwest mariah island on the east coast there we're starting to see a northeast east to northeasterly component come in at around about one and a half meters so that's set to continue for the day really with a southwest to start Southwesterly swell, one to one and a half metres about the western south. Confused swell across the north, and that uh, east to northeasterly at one and a half to two and a half metres over eastern waters with a southerly component to one metre as well. Terrific. Thank you, Belinda.
Thank you. Cheers, Belinda House from the Bureau with the latest information for you on the Country Hour into Year 78 for the Country Hour, uh, the ABC's longest-running program. Plenty of things online too on our ABC Rural page and also make sure you visit our ABC Rural Facebook page. Lots of great stories there that uh, you can have a look at, make a comment or two if you wish. And you can make a comment too on air, 0438 922 that number, 0438 922 Coming up, we'll look at US dairy genetics helping the local dairy industry and pay a tribute to a legend in the Tasmanian dairy industry. Who do you turn to during storms, floods and fires? For more than 90 years, ABC Radio has been with you through it all. Who's got reporters and broadcasters based in the city and in the country? ABC reporters and broadcasters bring you trusted local information. Who has an unmatched commitment to keeping you informed when communities are threatened? Get regular updates on air, online and on the ABC Listen app. ABC Radio. ABC Radio. Your Your emergency broadcaster. broadcaster. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Got lots of weeds around your place where you are. We'll uh, talk about uh, a unique weed-sniffing dog coming up for you very shortly. Plenty of weeds where I am, and let me tell you, with these weather conditions that we went uh, through spring and into summer now. Well, as Australia's dairy industry reaps the rewards of a high price and good conditions, many farmers are looking at new ways of improving their herd, and it does include looking into United States genetics. Bendigo reporter Sarah Lawrence spoke to US genetics representative Carl Kent at the International Dairy Week in Victoria and about why he's visiting Australia. Worldwide, the U.S. genetics is recognized as the highest-ranked genetics. In fact, when we look at um, uh, the rankings of genetics on the male side of it, and if you look at the top 100 bulls around the world, uh, about 88 or 87 of them come from the United States. Uh, The next largest country would be uh, Canada, and they would have about... 11. However, six or seven of those are actually bred in the United States and then exported to Canada. And there's one bull in the top 100 that comes from a European country. So when you look around the world and you look at the level of genetics, why we have out, we we have been luckily to rank higher than anybody else. And uh, that's why there's been a huge world demand for our genetics. And so, Carl, what's inspired you to come over to Australia? Well, Australia um, has been developing and is developed to be one of the best markets for U.S. genetics. Uh, There's there's a lot of progressive dairymen here in in, in Australia, and they are doing just like every other dairy uh, person around the world, trying to improve it. So what they want to do is go to... uh, uh, be able to source the best genetics so they can make the fastest genetic progress. So they've seen seen the United States. And actually, when we look at um, the exports that uh, of genetics to Australia, um, a- a- embryos is one of the big markets, is what the Australian uh, dairy men are buying. And, and Australia is actually the number third ranked country as far as buying embryos from the United States. So they are one of our huge customers there. 
and the other uh, uh, genetic export that we market a lot to in Australia is uh, semen. And uh, semen, uh, Australia ranks in the top 10 countries in the world for buying semen from the United States. So uh, one of the things that we're here for is just to uh, say thank you and answer any questions that, you know, you know, can we help you some more? And uh, to let you know that we care about doing business with you. Why is it so important that there is this global community in the genetics area? When you look at what's happening globally as far as population, it continues to explode. And one of the big things that they need, especially for those growing populations, is protein. And they recognize that one of the best sources of protein is milk. And so when we look at worldwide, we just think that the, the and believe that the demand for milk protein is going to continue to be higher and higher and grow and increase. So overall, we think that there's a good future as far as in the dairy industry, uh, uh, you know, uh, in in the countries that are growing and 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 uh, and as their levels of income increases in those countries, that also helps uh, drive their uh, market towards getting more protein as well too. So as those countries develop. That's U.S. Genetics Representative Carl Kent sending that report from Sarah Lawrence on the Australian dairy farmers utilising U.S. genetics. I stand with the people. People others first. Who care for the young. And the aged. Give of themselves. For the benefit of all. Make a difference in small ways. And bring big changes. I'm in good company. I'm in good company. Who will be Australian of the Year? Join Susie Youssef and me, Hamish McDonald, to find out who will be Australian of the Year. Wednesday night, January 25th on ABC Radio, ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Staying with the dairy industry now, and John Bennett, co-founder of Ashgrove Cheese in the state's northwest, has passed away. He dedicated more than 60 years to the Australian dairy industry, advancing research, exports and premium branding. Back in 2017, John Bennett was named Farming Legend as part of the Australian Farmer of the Year Awards. And this was part of the interview Larissa Smith recorded with him. Well, the problem with the farm for a couple of generations has been that we've been involved in bulk commodity export market. And the bottom line is, we were the, as a result of that, we were the lowest paid farmers in the world for our milk. And uh, there wasn't any bright thing there. So the concept was that we, to get out of that, should develop our own brand. In other words, value add on the farm. The brand of Ashgrove, which we developed, is absolutely critical to the future of our business. There's no joy in producing unbranded product and allowing some of the supermarkets to do their own thing with their own brands. How important has your political involvement in the dairy industry been in developing the brand and and the dairy industry in Tasmania? Well, it's been critical in educating me as to how one goes about uh, a lot of these aspects regarding to business. The fact that we had uh, surplus milk in the state 
The companies that we were supplying with milk said we don't want any additional milk. We were geared up on this farm to produce a whole lot of extra milk because we were developing the farm, the property, and we had the cows and we were ready to go. And the manufacturers said, we can't even store the product we've got. We can't take any of your surplus milk. And it was about at that stage that uh, I uh, got a phone call from the Federal Minister for Agriculture, who was a Tasmanian who was under the Whitlam government, Ken Reet. And I didn't know Ken, but he said to me, uh, I've got a problem, can you help me? I uh, have nobody within the Labor Party that understands anything about the dairy industry. And uh, my department in Canberra are adamant that the dairy industry should be let drift because the more we try and do anything with it, the more money the government's going to have to put into it. And they were negative. And Ken said, I really think I would like to give it a flutter to see what could be done. Could you help me? And we uh, set about a, a period of reinventing the Australian dairy industry because it was in a perilous state. It was constrained by legislation that was established in the 1930s. Individual companies could not market. It was an equalisation structure. Uh, small companies could not uh, operate. You could not believe what was going on. And it was a real education. So I've learned a lot through that exercise. Do you think businesses like yours that have diversified into premium brands are in a good position given where the rest of the dairy industry is? The ones that are in the premium brands are the ones that are doing well. But the bottom line is there's no point in being in premium brands unless you've got a market for them. If you're in the food market, you've basically got to be in the supermarkets. You know, you can make cheese with a vat and a broomstick and you can take it down to the local farmer's market and you can sell it and you can do well. But to take the business to the next step, it requires an enormous amount of skill and capital to be able to do that. But when you do it, you've still got to be able to maintain the uh, presence in the supermarkets. And the supermarkets are hell-bent on reducing the amount of uh, branded product that they have. For instance, we've won uh, national awards for cheese, the premium show in this nation, and in the same week we've had one of the supermarkets say, oh, well, we don't want that cheese. And um, But they're saying that they don't want it, they just want to drive our price down to a situation where we find it uneconomic. So it's a question of uh, how we handle that. It's always an interesting discussion. How does being a, a farming legend sit with you? Very uneasily. How so? Well, I've never regarded myself as a legend. I don't know much about legend. It's not part of my vocabulary. It's incredible to look back. I'm not a historian, and one of the things that I have in, been interested in with regard to this award is that it has given my family so much pleasure couldn't have done it without them. Connie was brilliant, the kids were brilliant, the extended family were very supportive, as was the, this community. So uh, we've come a long way. And when I look at the farms around this area now, I'm very proud of, the, of what's happened. What does being part of this community mean to you? It means a lot. It's all about community. And that's what the Ashgrove cheese factory is all about we when it was established had the 
lowest income in the nation in this region and the highest unemployment. We still have that, but in the meantime, Ashgrove's employing something like 100 people. And uh, the destiny of Tasmania rests not with a few big companies doing big things, but a few small companies like Ashgrove doing their little bit and the community at large supporting them. Because the, if we haven't got the support of the community, in other words, if they don't buy the product, we haven't got a business. And the community have been great. And the community has lost one of its best. An interview there with John Bennett, one of the founders of Ashgrove Cheese at Elizabethtown in the state's northwest, recorded back in 2017 when he was awarded Farming Legend of the Year. Uh, Vale John Bennett AM and condolences to the Bennett family. Who do you turn to during storms, floods and fires? For more than 90 years, ABC Radio has been with you through it all. Who's got reporters and broadcasters based in the city and in the country? ABC reporters and broadcasters bring you trusted local information. Who has an unmatched commitment to keeping you informed when communities are threatened? Get regular updates on air, online and on the ABC Listen app. ABC Radio. ABC Radio. Your Your emergency emergency broadcaster. broadcaster. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Well, I know there's plenty of them around after the weather conditions we uh, we had through spring and now the hot summer. Weeds. They can often look pretty, but don't be fooled after the wet spring. Lots of noxious weeds are spreading. Tasmania is bringing in the big guns to fight weed growth. Fonzie, the weed-sniffing dog, is out and about, sniffing out orange hawkweed and also some of the nasty grasses which are growing around the place. Fiona Breen, our reporter, caught up with environmental consultants Melanie Kelly and also Morgan McPherson to find out more. It has been quite a crazy season. It's, um, the weather has really brought around different sort of patterns with the plant growth. And so one of the big things that we are noticing is most of the plants are growing quite fast and putting out flowers and seeds almost at the same time, which is making managing quite difficult. But one of the one things we're looking at is orange hawkweed, and we are seeing that is putting out more flowers than we've probably noticed before. So it's definitely a great bumper season for plants. Um, but it is creating some challenges for management. Uh, bumper season for plants and crops, but also for weeds. I see that in my own garden. I'm sure a lot of other people do as well. But this this little orange hawkweed, it's got a pretty little orange flower. It does. It's quite a quite a pretty little plant. We can sort of, the understanding is that it may have come from an old village from the old hydro days. So it looks like it's a bit of a garden escapee. And so, so it would have been planted <laughs> so in someone's front garden to look pretty. Maybe one of the Europeans that was working on the scheme. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's what they think is one of the issues. We find it in um, Kosciuszko too, up in the New South Wales. So, and yeah, so it's a garden escapee that's slowly potentially taking over a bit of the landscape. So is that the problem with it, that it's taking over yes, sort of native space? That's right. So it's a little daisy that grows quite close to the ground um, and it forms like a, a mat and it can sort of spread via seeds, which is either by air or water or animals or humans uh, or by its runners. So it's very good at 
growing in any conditions. It can handle or tolerate quite a few different growing conditions. And what it does eventually is, is actually become a mat across the landscape and it can be sort of, yeah, push out every native smothers. and smother. It's, it's got some qualities for pasture, but it's not as good as your, your desired species. So, yeah, once again, it's really actually a bit of a challenge for all I hate aspects. those runners That's that right. go in the soil. You can never get them out. Now, I'm also joined by Melanie Ke- Kelly, who's an environmental consultant and dog handler. Now, you've got Fonzie, who is able to sniff out these weeds. Yes. So Fonzie's a five-year-old working line German shepherd from Gasover Shepherds here in Tasmania, Tasmanian broad and bred um, dog. He was selected especially for his potential to be a um, conservation detection dog with the idea of training him initially, which which he still does today, to find serrated tussock, which is a highly invasive um, grass species that is, is very bad for both agriculture and environment. In probably... The second year of his life, we also transitioned him over onto um, orange hawkweed. Uh, He was inspired by the orange hawkweed detection dogs that Parks New South Wales pioneered a number of years ago under the um, guidance of Steve Austin, who's a a renowned Australian dog trainer. Yeah, we've had Steve Austin here. I've actually been to Macquarie Island with Steve Austin when they were hunting down rabbits and rats and everything. Yes. So those dogs are amazing. That's right. Well, we feel very lucky. We were both myself and Fonzie were trained by Steve. He's um, helped us, you know, produce a really fantastic, you know, working dog who's fantastic at finding weeds, which is... Why do you need a dog to find a weed? I mean, can't you just see a weed? Well, orange hawkweed is obviously fairly obvious when it's orange and it's got flowers. But as Morgan said, quite often there are no flowers and it's just a tiny little flat rosette on the ground, almost the the size of your thumbnail, if not smaller, hidden underneath other grasses and little shrubs and things. And um, as as we say every day that we're out in the field with Fonzie, that, that there are there are plants that he finds that we would never, ever have found. There's no question we would never have found them because we're biased. We're looking with our eyes. He's smelling. He's He's not looking. He's he's following the the scent cone um, to, to to hunt. Follow that scent cone back to the source, and and I'm sure people have heard lots of stories about amazing things that dogs can find, but. That you know, we're we're looking for very elusive um, outlier plants, so we're not taking Fonzie into areas where there's lots of plants because we don't need e- the dog for that. Yeah, very easy to get. Yeah, so we're really looking on the outskirts of known infestations or going back to areas where there's been lots of control done over many years, as there has been a lot of work in Tasmania on orange hawkweed by lots of different people with a lot of support through the state government and different um, funding opportunities, and obviously Hobart Council and and different agencies support that work. We're kind of getting to the point in some locations where there's no question we need a dog. Um, okay, Melanie yeah. Kelly, Kelly, what sort of places or where where are you going? Where are you taking Fonzie? So this year and the last couple of years, we're working in the Central Highlands. So in um, um, on a variety of different land tenures, um, p- private and um, public land, uh, basically building on knowledge of various infestations that people have found over many years. But part of our work is to actually push beyond that and also work really this way. This interview is really great to work with Hobart Council and other organisations to really get people out there looking for those orange flowers if they're around so that we can look and see maybe if there's other areas that we need to search that we've never been to before. Morgan McPherson, you're an environmental land manager. Does this have any implications? These weeds have any implications for the agriculture? cultural industry at all? Yeah, so orange hawkweed is, um, along with many of the other ones, it's 
Fonz is trained on is actually something that can take over your pasture landscape. So they do have some qualities that your livestock can feed on, but they're not the desirable amount. So it's not really what you want in your paddocks and it can eventually take over and then you have no pasture left. So yeah, it, it is a concern for both agricultural and the environment and conservation. Now, also, we talked a fair bit about orange hawkweed. What other weeds are really going well at the moment with all that rain we've had in spring and now some warm conditions? Uh, yeah, well, staying up in the highlands with um, English broom, along with some of the other broom species, has really taken off. So that's one of the things that we, we have some broom plans and management plans up there with multiple stakeholders. So that's definitely come up to the top of the list again. Some of your thistle species are taking off again. Thistles are everywhere. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And I just look at them seeding and the seeds blowing everywhere everywhere and think, oh, that's right. That's yeah. hard work. Yeah. So that that's some of our big problems. And the, the grasses are taking off too, really. Unfortunately, sort of on the east coast of Tassie, they're really... Serrated tussock. Yeah. And in uh, other locations in the northern Midlands and, and in southern Tassie as well, serrated tussock. And unfortunately, the more they look, the more they find of Chilean needlegrass. So that's, I guess, a big... A, Big What's the get. worry about that, Melanie Kelly? Oh, very much um, concern for agriculture because uh, serrated tussock has a very low nutritional value for stock, so uh, you do not want a paddock full of it. Um, a lot of farmers are very, very aware of the threats of, of certainly of serrated tussock um, and chili needlegrass. We didn't think, I guess, we had a huge amount in Tasmania. T- the terrible thing about chili needlegrass, as you can imagine, it has a very needle-like seed head and it's sort of got barbs. It can kind of twist into your into your stock and actually can damage your, your, your meat quality. And uh, we've heard stories of sheep that have been in paddocks of chili and needlegrass that cannot move because oh, they basically become be like pin cushions. Mm. So it's really nasty. And obviously there's implications for wildlife, your pets. Um, so, yeah, Is there anything you don't want. the average uh, person out there can do? Are there any pictures they can access to sort of try and identify some of these? Yeah. So with the Orange Hawkweed, we've got a program running on iNaturalist, which is a really good opportunity for the public to get involved with. And so they, if we go into our Don't Catchment Program's website, there'll be a link to the iNaturalist uh, page, and that will allow you to sort of use the iNaturalist app to take photos of it, and then we can hopefully help identify what you're looking at. Um, the rest of the grass species, I mean, NRE's got some good information out there, and Adam's running the Invasive Grasses Program at the moment through some WAF fund, uh, Weed Action Fund funding. And, fe- and some federal government funding yeah. as well. So there'll be a real push um, on the yeah, Natural Resources and Environment State Government webpage around those invasive grasses. And there's going to be a lot more work, I think, in the next 12 months to really help uh, provide resources to people around ID to help with ID. But if anyone, you know, they can always contact Envirodynamics or Don't Catchment Project or certainly um, NRE if they want support in terms of being sure that what they think they've found is either orange hawkweed or, or one of the nasty grasses. It certainly is a big industry in Tasmania fighting those weeds. That was Mel- Melanie Kelly, environmental consultant with Envirodynamics. And also Morgan McPherson, who's an environmental land manager, talking there to Fiona Breen with the unique dog, the smelling weed-smelling dog, Fonzie, searching for the orange hawkweed and some of the nasty grasses around the place. And uh, as Morgan mentioned, the Derwent Catchment Management Program. If you go online, uh, you can read more about that and uh, see what they're doing. Fantastic. Uh, ABC Rural Facebook page has a good story too. How many sheep could you shear in 24 hours? Shearers Sean Barnett and Dylan Hancock shorn a whopping 1,600 sheep for charity. That story's on our ABC Rural Facebook page. Have a look at the pair smiling after their antics. That's our country hour for today. Catch you after midday tomorrow.